In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In our gospel reading today, it would appear that Jesus is giving out some good etiquette lessons, like a first-century Emily Post. When you're invited to a wedding banquet, don't sit in a privileged spot, because maybe someone more important than you shows up, and then everyone laughs at you when you get moved down to the kids' table. It fits with black tie invited and black tie optional mean the same thing, and you eat using the outer silverware first and make your way in. Easy, right? This is how you behave at dinner. It would be strange for Luke, though, to record such a very practical but non-spiritual piece of advice in his gospel. And we get a clue that this little life hack is more than what it seems. When Jesus, upon noticing everybody choosing the places of honor, tells them what Luke calls a parable. Parables are more than just helpful anecdotes. And Jesus means to communicate something of much more significance than how to get a good seat at the table. Our reading began by telling us that Jesus was eating at the home of one of the rulers of the Pharisees, who are watching him closely. By this point in the story, he and the Pharisees are already at odds with each other. While there, just before today's parable, Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, no less, which invites criticism from the Pharisees, maybe even criticism from his host. And it's into that tension that Jesus gives this parable about where to sit, ending with, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He goes on to say that when you host a dinner, you should only invite those who can't return the favor, a comment that the text tells us is directed at his host, and so it must be a critique of the current guest list. It's as if Jesus is saying, Dear host, you invited a bunch of people who are going to jockey for position and who will return the favor at their own dinners. But the true way to follow God is to break the Sabbath, or at least your rigid understanding of what it means to Sabbath, choose loneliness and waste your dinner invitations on people who can't pay you back. And in the end, the last will be first. That final piece, the last will be first, is a theme that shows up all over Luke's gospel. Luke recorded Mary's Magnificat, which is all about God casting down the mighty from their thrones and lifting up the lowly. In Luke's recounting of the Beatitudes, it isn't the poor in spirit who are blessed, like Matthew tells us, but simply the poor. And then it's followed up by woes pronounced for the rich. A few chapters after this morning's reading, Jesus will talk about a Pharisee and a tax collector in a parable who both go up for prayer, one trusting in his righteousness and the other simply saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in that parable, it's the one whose life was less righteous who has his prayer heard by God. When Jesus teaches us in today's passage and throughout Luke's gospel is that we have to follow him and seek after humility. Jesus teaches us to not think too much of ourselves and then from that place of humility to recklessly reach out to marginalized and untouchable people who won't pay us back. Because in the end, it is in losing our lives that we gain them. Now, we see this type of lifestyle on display in what we heard from the letter to the Hebrews this morning. While the chapter opens with the exhortation to mutual love, presumably meaning within the body of Christ, the next instruction expands the boundaries of care to show hospitality to strangers and to visit those in prison and those being mistreated and tortured. Now, there are potential risks with, with helping those in prison, bringing them perhaps food and water that they aren't receiving from their jailers, because to do so might implicate you. It might be guilt by association. 
But the writer to the Hebrews seems fine with this, encouraging his readers to do this work as if you were in prison with them, as though you yourselves were being tortured. The way to follow our incarnate and crucified priest and king is to do exactly what he did, pouring ourselves out, losing ourselves, dying to ourselves, in order to care for and identify with those who are weakest and most vulnerable. And the early church lived this out. What we know of the growth of the early church in that early Roman period is that their numbers expanded because they took in untouchables, babies left out to be exposed, and sick people whose communicable diseases were causing them to be kicked out of their families. You're a Roman family, your family member is sick, potentially with a life-ending illness, get them out of the house so they don't infect anyone else. And these people are who the early Christians brought in, risking themselves in order to care for those who were lost. These passages don't leave a lot of room for frugality or good stewardship or respectability. While the New Testament does have something to say about living the kind of life that would be perceived as righteous by those outside of the church, an admonition we might consider a little bit more, that admonition doesn't extend to doing things that would build up credibility in places of honor. There is never a New Testament call to work on getting any seats at any tables. Paul himself only invokes his Roman citizenship when he's about to be killed, and he says, oh yeah, by the way, I actually have some status you might want to consider. I don't say this to single out anybody in particular. I think there are lots of ways to try and seek after respectability, no matter what corner of the world we're in. I know that I can always use a good reminder that the way of the cross should be foolishness to those who are perishing. And throughout church history, God has done great things thanks to incredibly foolish people who have been willing to cast aside all their worldly goods and status in order to follow him and do what he called them to do. If you read much on the virtues, you'll find that many philosophers and theologians talk about humility as the foundation or a starting point for all the virtues. Humility functions this way because it puts the self in its right place, not in self-loathing, not in hating ourselves, but in recognizing limitations, finding our place, and truly desiring the good of others. Paul, in telling the Romans how to treat one another in Romans 12, puts it this way, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Karen Swallow Pryor closes her chapter on humility in her book On Reading Well with this bit about Flannery O'Connor. Before O'Connor knew for certain who she was and what she was good at, when she was struggling to learn this along with the craft of writing, she kept a prayer journal at school. In it, she wrote this prayer, but dear God, please give me some place, no matter how small, but let me know it and keep it. If I'm the one to wash the second step every day, let me know it and let me wash it and let my heart overflow with love washing it. Pryor concludes, humility is taking our place no matter how small or big and fulfilling that place with a heart overflowing with love. The good life begins and ends with humility. Humility is what the Pharisees lack because it requires one to cast aside desires for status and power. And their righteousness, true righteousness in some cases as it was, was always poisoned by their desire to be known to be righteous. Think about Jesus' condemnation of them in the Sermon on the Mount, that they said their prayers and they fasted and disfigured their faces so that they would be known. And Jesus says, well, fine, you've already received your reward. It seems to me 
that this has to be at least part of why Jesus commends the faith of children, as their egos have yet to block their view of God. One commentary I read this week quoted George Herbert, saying, Humble we must be if to heaven we go. High is the roof there, but the gate is low. But looking at our text today, doesn't this way of life just seem like a matter of delayed gratification? Aren't the calls to give up temporary pleasure followed up by a promise that if you choose to be last now, you'll get to be first later? I mean, I just said the New Testament doesn't care about getting seats at tables, but this morning we did read a gospel passage in which Jesus gives advice about getting seats at tables. I immediately picture a line of little kids who find out that the last person to go in will be the first to get ice cream, and now they suddenly force each other, trying to push the other one in front of them. No, no, you go first, because really it's just about getting the ice cream. Doesn't that promise of guaranteed better prizes cheapen the earthly sacrifice? Well, I think in order to answer this question, we look at what the return is, what the payback is. And the payback isn't simply a better seat at a better table. It's something different entirely, different not just in degree, but in kind. It's a reward in the life of the world to come. And that life is different enough from our current life that it can only be described in metaphor. It's received by resurrected saints who have bodies that are somehow like the trees that grow out of the seeds of our deceased selves. I can look at an acorn and an oak tree, and I can say that they are the same thing, that one dies and gives life to the other. But if there's only been one oak tree, and he ascended into heaven a number of years ago, and all we have is acorns, it's hard to say, yes, dying to self is fine. All we have is acorns. And if we take Hebrews 11, this long list of heroes of faith as our model, then we all die without ever having received what is promised. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob get to live lives of faithfulness, leaving their homeland, pursuing what God promised them, only to die before those promises are fulfilled. The thing received is something hoped for in faith. And the action of humble service, done by faith and not by sight, may not be apparent to you in the first place. In this chapter, when the writer invokes Abraham's hospitality, he points out that, like Abraham, when you are entertaining angels, you might be doing so without even knowing it. When Jesus spoke of separating sheep and goats at the final judgment based on who gave water to the thirsty and clothes to those who needed it and visited him in prison, neither sheep nor goat had any idea that they had already encountered Jesus in those moments. They don't say, yes, I remember when I did that, now that you mention it. All of them are confused and find out later what they were doing. What does it feel like to give hospitality to an angel? Apparently, it feels exactly the same as giving hospitality to a stranger. The point is this. In serving God and following Jesus, we don't just trust in our own strength and marvel at our own skills, placing ourselves high up at the table as we congratulate ourselves for the good work we've done. We humble ourselves, serve people who have no business being served, maybe even serve in a way that puts us out of our comfort zone and see what happens. See, the writer to the Hebrews wouldn't have to remind his audience that God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, and encourage them to say with confidence that the Lord is my helper, I, I will not be afraid, if what he was telling them to do wasn't lonely, risky, or scary, or if it didn't look like a dead end, like wasted effort. It might be that in serving the lowly, we don't see much of any return on our investment, because we probably ought not try and control the outcomes of our service. We ought not try and determine both the ends and the means. 
First off, because we can't control them as much as we might try. And secondly, God often has such better and different outcomes, such better and different returns from what we would have planned that once we see the difference, we wouldn't want to be involved in the planning in the first place. See, it's pretty hard to grow in humility through strategic planning and controlled outcomes, removing all the variables. But risk and failure and humiliation, that will do the trick. That is how you grow in humility, not by succeeding, but by failing. And that's the kind of serving that is at the heart of the church's call. One commentary summarized Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees about seating at tables with this. For the disciple, service and meeting the needs of others is not an option. It is the appropriate response to Jesus' call to follow him. In short, the church is not to worry about the chair of honor. Rather, it is to make chairs available to those who are looking for a place to sit, even for those who think there are no chairs for them. Now, of course, we must always be on guard for the insidiousness of self-righteousness. You can do all the things that we heard this morning. Find the weakest and most vulnerable. Welcome them. Care for them. Invite people who will never invite you back. Put yourself in the lowest seat. You can champion all the causes you want, and in doing so, cultivate your pride and start to make your way up that table, patting yourself on the back the whole way there. If humility is the foundation of the virtues, then may we all be cautious when we feel good about just how pro-life or pro-immigrant or anti-racist we are. Because nothing will stoke the, fr- the flame of pride in your chest and my chest than spending your time thinking about how much better you are than others. Thinking about how the, we aren't like those Christians who don't really care about the poor people, at least the poor people that I care about, not the poor people that they care about. We can spend a lot of time marveling at the kids we support in Kenya and say, unlike those churches who don't care about kids. Or look at how we serve at the food pantry, unlike those other churches. And in all of that, we ignore both God and the neighbor we're serving, turning our gaze to ourselves and looking down at others, maybe whose virtues we're not noticing, but whose vices we're focusing on. Jesus said something about that, about planks and splinters. Peter Kreeft put it well. He said, pride looks down, but no one can see God but by looking up. Looking up, looking to God helps us see ourselves rightly. And in that proper place, we can then receive from God the grace that we need, allow that to overflow and care for others. May we find ourselves humbly following Jesus' example, looking first to our Father God to receive the grace and humility that we need, and then serving and pouring out ourselves for others not for personal gains or self-righteous victories, but so that we might be blessed, happy, receive joy because they can't repay us. It struck me at the earlier service, this is a fun anecdote you get at the 11 o'clock because it happened at the 9 o'clock. Sitting at the altar rail, none of us ever do anything to deserve the grace we receive at the table. In fact, we do everything to mandate it or to require it, but at no point do we ever receive grace that we have merited. That's what we do. That's why we all kneel. That's why all of us are at the same rail. And so whatever you think about your spiritual life, it is defined first and foremost by a thing done for you on your behalf that you didn't have the power to do. May that be the thing that inspires us to go serve. That keeps us in our place of humility. That keeps us in a place where we can serve others because no matter what their situation is, we know everything we have is a gift from God. I'll close with how the writer to the Hebrews put it at the end of today's reading. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of those who confess his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Amen.